You're listening to Latin Waves with your hosts, Sylvia and Stuart Richardson. Latin Waves is more than just hot rhythms. This is a show about community, about creating a culture that is inclusive and based on fairness. Because everyone deserves dignity, respect, and has something to contribute. A new world is possible, and it all starts with us. You're listening to Latin Ways. I'm your host, Sylvia Richardson. I'm joined by Dr. Robert Jensen. He's a professor of media and law and ethics at the University of Texas in Austin. He's also a prolific author. So many of my favorite books have come from Robert Jensen. His latest book is co-author with Wes Jackson. The title of the book, An Inconvenient Apocalypse. And the book title already sparks a lot of curiosity in me. So welcome to our show, Robert. Thank you for being with us. Well, thank you, Sylvia. It's always such a treat to be able to talk to you. Now, your book, An Inconvenient Apocalypse, Environmental Collapse, Climate Crisis, and the Fate of Humanity. That's very ominous title. Um, you know, and perhaps not so ominous when we look at the you know, climate situation we're facing. But what is unusual about your book? You know, there's a lot of books written on climate crisis and climate change right now. Yeah, and there have been for a number of years now. Uh, the warning bells have been sounded. The title, An Inconvenient Apocalypse, is, of course, a play on An Inconvenient Truth, the Al Gore film and book, which have you know, been around for decades now. Uh, I like to think of the book Wes Jackson and I wrote as kind of a, a loving sledgehammer. <laughs> that is, it, what we're trying to do is be as blunt as possible, as honest as possible, about realities that are not easy to to face. And I don't mean not easy for other people. I mean not easy for us as well. Uh, yet we do it, I hope, with a kind of loving embrace of not only other people, but the larger living world. And so I guess what the book is at its heart is a rejection of denialism. Now, we're familiar with the climate change denial. That's a, a feature of a lot of right-wing politics. But we're not just talking about climate change denial. We're talking about denialism right, left, and center, because Wes and I believe that um, so-called moderate political folks are also in denial, not that climate change is happening, but denial of the, the implications of it. And although I've lived my adult life on the progressive left, I think the progressive left is in denial about the implications of not only climate change, but what I would call uh, the multiple cascading crises, social and ecological. That is, climate change is, you know, the the existential threat we all focus on. But if you think about soil erosion, soil degradation, chemical contamination, loss of biodiversity, all of these, uh, which are uh, a problem of the fundamental condition of human overshoot, all of these are a threat, and they're not just a product of the last 50 years or the last 100 years or the last 200 years. These are crises that have been unfolding over a much longer period of time. So Wes Jackson, who's most known for his work in sustainable agriculture, uh, really groundbreaking work there over the last 50 years, uh, Wes and I teamed up to try and, and provide that loving sledgehammer, the, the blunt reality uh, but with, we hope, a very human touch in how to deal with it. So much of your work is often so revealing in many ways. 
in previous interviews, you pointed out the cruelty of truth, right? To face mm-hmm. the truth. Um, and so how do we begin then? Because in order for us to reconsider a new way of being, we must first yeah. consider the origins of our ongoing consumption crisis, yeah. right? Which, which is right. part of the feeling, this whole of isolation and alienation that uh, a world that is colonized and you know, completely yeah. wounded by the constant violence ge- regenerates. Yeah. Uh, I think you're right. Um, that the truth is often cruel. Um, we can look around at the incredible wealth inequality and injustice that defines the human family, and these crises that I think at this point, you know, deserve the term collapse, that define the relationship of the human family and the larger living world. Uh, there is a cruelty to that that we can't turn away from. And I think you're right. We have to ask, where does this come from? Now, this is one place where the book diverges from some of the contemporary progressive thinking. Um, A lot of people on the left want to blame the oil companies, and that's fine. The oil companies uh, have a lot to answer for. Um, I'm no fan of the CEOs of the energy companies. Uh, A lot of people on the left want to blame the larger system of capitalism. And again, no debate there. I've been an anti-capitalist critic most of my adult life. But what Wes and I want to do is go back and look at the origins of human energy seeking beyond replacement levels. That is, when human beings started taking more from the landscape than could be replaced in uh, a reasonable time frame. And that, of course, takes us back to the origins of agriculture, the beginnings of hierarchical societies. So it's not that we think the oil companies should get off the hook or that capitalism should be ignored, but that we should see this as part of a human problem. Now, of course, it needs to be said that the distribution of wealth and power around the world is not equitable or equal. So not all humans today have uh, the same role in all of this. But we're talking about a a species problem. Uh, You could call it a species propensity like all organisms, to maximize the amount of energy-rich carbon we take out of the ecosystems around us. And the problem is human beings have gotten very good at that energy extraction. And now, in a kind of ironic way, we have to face the failure of our own success, our own success at being able to get incredible amounts of energy out of the landscape, but the failures that that has led us to. One of the things that is clear to me is that this idea that humans are not animals needs to be corrected. You know, indigenous cultures all across the world, you know, accept that we are just one more species on the planet, you know, and it begins with our creation stories, right? Our ability to imagine that we belong somewhere else in the heavens and that the earth is just a place we temporarily get to use and plunder and you know, it's just there for us to do what we wish. In your book, um, you are not only talking about our very hubris as human beings to consider ourselves outside of nature, to consider ourselves other than animals, um, but also we're talking about the consumeristic culture and these high-energy technologies, dystopias that have been created out of a whole cycle of racism, you know, and um, 
empire building you know in in this in the yeah. 21st century we consider the u.s the benevolent empire which all of us in latin america may feel otherwise but uh and perhaps other parts of the world may experience similar uh, dissidents to that knowledge um how do we reconcile then the fact that we if we are not even willing to visualize the structure injustice that is inherent in our institutions be it our church our schools you know how are we to disentangle ourselves from the lies that keep us in this cycle to go back to the notion that we're animals for for wes and i this is kind of a two-stage process in the book we talk about the difference between recognizing ourselves as animals or as what we call animals plus so, for instance, a lot of religious people believe we have a non-material soul. Even some secular people believe these things. Um, and, and I accept and, and respect the, the variety of opinions people have about the, the spiritual plane. But Wes and I are kind of old-school materialists. We think it's, it's a material world. And, and so we are suggesting we think of ourselves as animals, not animals plus something else, plus a soul, plus some sort of unique free will and all of that. So we're trying to ground ourselves in basic biology. Uh, But we're also grounded in history. And as you point out, uh, take modern consumerism, uh, a direct product of the capitalist system, uh, which encourages, you know, really grotesque and obscene levels of consumption, which not only destroy ecosystems, but rarely add much to human happiness. So we have to extract ourselves from that consumerist world as we try to change the system that created it. But I think it's also important to pause and say, why is consumerism so hard to get ourselves out of? Well, it's it's partly because a lot of things that we consume in, let's just say, the last century uh, are really quite pleasant. Uh, Think of all the machines that do work that human beings then don't have to do. Let me give you an easy example. I had to dig a hole for our plumber uh, out here in the very rocky soil of northern New Mexico uh, to fix a leak in our plumbing. Uh, And it took me the better part of a day with a shovel and a pickaxe. Now, uh, a backhoe could have dug that same hole in about 20 minutes, and I would have been you know, a lot less sore at the end of the day. So that's consumption. You know, a backhoe takes an enormous amount of fossil fuel to, for the mining, extraction, uh, manufacturing, and then use of that tool. But it's a tool we like because it, it's easier on our backs. So not all consumption in the world is simply a you know, product of the capitalist conspiracy to keep us enslaved to meaningless consumption. A lot of it is. I'm not arguing that. But we have to realize that capitalism works and consumption works. This consumption mentality works because it also produces a lot of pleasure and relieves us of a lot of very onerous kinds of work. And so if we're going to move from a high energy, high technology, unsustainable society, which is how I would describe the current world, to a low energy, low technology, sustainable society, it's going to mean not only giving up some of the most absurd aspects of a capitalist economy. Those are, you know, what we would probably think of as the low-hanging fruit, the things that we can reject quite easily, like billionaire yachts. Sylvia, I think you and I would probably agree we can live without billionaire yachts, correct? I could do without it. 
Yeah. But but there's a whole lot of other energy consumption that is going to be much harder for everybody to give up. And in the book, Wes and I don't exempt ourselves from this. We we point out things that we do that are not going to be possible indefinitely if we are going to achieve a sustainable world. So uh, none of this argues we should take our focus off of the injustice that the current system produces. And that's a capitalist system in which the disproportionate share of wealth and power is hoarded by a small number of nations and often a small number of people within those nations. That has to change. But we're also up against some aspects of what Wes called our human carbon nature. That is not only human nature, but human nature understood in that context of being carbon-based creatures that go after energy. Um, In other words, I think what our book does is not suggest we should change our progressive politics, but suggest that we deepen them with a better understanding of biology and ecology. When when we ask each other to take individual action, it's almost already a, a, a failing battle because there's so many institutions in place. How do we get around, you know, when we are still struggling with even seeing the yeah. invisibilizing ways that we co-create and ratify and sustain injustice for so many people in the world. Yeah, I mean, you're you're raising the questions that make it hard to be glib about progress uh, on these many fronts, racism, imperialism, capitalism, all of which are very real. They're imposed often with violence. Um, you know, the distribution of wealth and power in the world didn't get this way non-violently. Um, the, the dominant powers were not hesitant to use that kind of violence. Uh, but of course, it's not maintained strictly through violence. So um, just a personal example, uh, probably the part of the world I've traveled the most in outside the United States is South Asia, India, and Pakistan. And it, it always struck me, although it's an obvious point that American fast food corporations have you know, blanketed the globe with their products. But every time I would be in South Asia and see someone drinking uh, a Coca-Cola or a Sprite or, or one of those beverages, it would, there was a certain kind of sadness in me because of course, um, these are not nutritionally beneficial food products. It's not as if American corporations are going around the world spreading uh, nutritionally positive uh, food. It's, it's a disaster for human health, for ecosystems, because the water that's needed for that production is often diverted from folks who need it more for, for basic living in agriculture. Uh, it concentrates profits. Uh, it, it's an awful thing. But why are Coca-Cola and Sprite popular? Well, it's because they taste good. Uh, I mean, one has to really, and I've done this, you have to train yourself to not want that taste anymore. But that burst of flavor and satisfaction that comes from highly sugared beverages isn't a capitalist illusion. That's real. And so we're dealing with both aspects. We're dealing with this reality that because of the kind of animals we are, we like certain kinds of payoffs from high energy. But at the same time, the way that high energy system is structured is distorted 
by all of these profoundly immoral systems that concentrate wealth and power. Uh, once again, we're, we're stuck with having to deal with both things at the same time. We have to deal with human history and the incredible failure of human history to produce something like a just and equitable world. But we also have to deal with a longer um, project that takes seriously biology and ecology that tries to understand what kind of animals we really are. Um, you know, it's hard enough to do any one of these things at one time. It's hard enough to focus on, let's say, white supremacy in the U.S. or patriarchy and and try to achieve meaningful, um, you know, strategies. To try and deal with them all at one time feels overwhelming. And the reason is because it is overwhelming. And that's one of the things Wes and I write about. Nobody can really take all of this in, including us. We're not suggesting we're somehow, you know, superhuman and have figured it all out. Um, in other words, when people say, well, that's too much for people to bear, we agree. It is too much for any one person to bear. So what do we do? Well, we try to come together. We follow our passion, our talent, our temperament. We try to focus on the things that we think we can achieve in our own lifetime, knowing that, you know, a, a real solution is going to take much longer than any one life. So I, I realize that's kind of an inadequate answer to the question, well, what are we supposed to do about all this? But um, I think that's the human fate at the moment to, to deal with, I was going to say sadness, a sadness, but it's something more than sadness, to deal with a kind of anguish that is really beyond our capacity to cope with, but try to muddle our way through it together. You know, I recently came across the story of the Wabanaki people They're the northeastern part of um, the United States. Um, and they were the first contact in Turtle Island by settlers. And one of the things they say is that when our relations go so out of alignment with the earth, uh, the earth protector rises. And so they talk about this giant that's awakens and it causes the humans to be lulled into this dance of you know that they move faster and faster and faster in their destruction right and the whole intention of the giant is to dance us off the earth into extinction and it seems to me that we're very much in the dance you know we're very much in the dance and it's really hard once you're in the dance to notice to stop to pause and take a, a real yeah. moment to just consider, to sit in circle with others, to consider the ramifications of our actions on other people, on each other, on the animals, on the, you know, the, the mountains, the trees that were <laughs> devastating with our consumption. And so, you know, the, the, the question is always, why not wake up? Why not wake up? Because that's really the only thing that stops the giant is when you wake up and you put the giant gently back to sleep. And, and so for for our conversation, when we think about the actions of a, a person can have on the whole system can seem minuscule, you know, can seem mm -hmm. minuscule. But again... We always have to start where we are. You know, if you ask the Zapatistas when you try to join the revolution, they say, yes, yes, join us. Go fight where you are. <laughs> and, yeah. and so beginning where we are, what are some small um, steps 
people can take towards stopping this dance of destruction that we're engaged with and how do we begin to just see and learn to taste and take our bitters because yep. bitters are really good for your liver if you just take sugar <laughs> you'll get diabetes you know <laughs> yeah well this may seem counterintuitive but i think the first step is to recognize we will fail that is if people say well we need to find solutions and by solutions they mean ways that 8 billion nearly 8 billion people on the planet can continue to live at something like this current aggregate level of consumption Right, that that if somehow if we could magically distribute um, the wealth of the world equally, we'd be fine. Well, the fact is we won't be. There is no way, from my point of view, for 8 billion people to live at anything like the current level of aggregate consumption. That simply isn't going to happen. So we have to acknowledge that if that's your goal, if that's what you think we should be trying to achieve, then you will fail. And I think that failure is important to recognize. Um, and then we can start to shift our goals. And as you said, part of this is learning to live with less. And learning to live with less means less energy, less technology, less comfort. It's not only that we have to give up, you know, um, air travel. I mean, you know, cheap and easy air travel is insane. And at some point, the human species will not be flying around the world everywhere. But we not only have to give up cheap and easy air travel, we're going to have to give up a lot more than that. And I think you're right that cultivating an appreciation of what's there when you reduce energy consumption is crucial. In the book, uh, we talk about uh, a phone call Wes made to me once where he was out walking. He lives in the Kansas prairie, and he had a simple question. He said, why is this not enough? You know, he was walking on the prairie. He was taking in the animals, the plants. Uh, he was enjoying life by simply walking. And he says, why is this not enough? Why do we need, you know, cruise ships and, uh, you know, video games and, and a lot of other things? Now, I'm not saying that, you know, people who play video games are, are evil. I mean, there's a lot of things we have become conditioned to enjoy because they can be enjoyable, but they're not going to be available in a low energy future. And I think you're right that the only way that that's, it's going to be possible to continue is if we realize that what we do have is enough. That is what the ecosphere gives us is a source of endless amazement. Um, I've recently moved from a city to a more rural area and it, uh, among the other many benefits of that has been a renewed and deepened appreciation of how everything around me is enough. And um, now I'm lucky to be able to have done this. A lot of people can't move out of cities. I'm not being naive, but we all have to cultivate this wherever we live. Uh, and I think you're right that a lot of it is simply about slowing down, accepting that we will not move as fast and use as much as we have for the last several centuries of human history. That's beautiful. I often love the way you not only help us see what's very scary, and I like that you introduce the concept of failure in our attempts to change our world. Because often we attach to the outcome so tightly that the minute we experience the first sign of failure, we give up. Yeah. 
And yeah. and so including it in our process is key if we are to keep moving slow and steady, slow and steady. Yeah, yeah it's about what, what goals we set. Um, I, I always like to re- remind people there was a famous line in the movie Apollo 13 where <clears throat> an engineer says, failure is not an option. And I want to suggest that, in fact, failure is our only option. That is, we are going to fail to keep this system running. And so the question is, what does that failure look like? And this is where I often find myself at odds with fellow progressive lefty colleagues. For instance, the Green New Deal. Uh, I critiqued the Green New Deal, not because I'm against alternative energy or you know research and development on new technologies, but because the Green New Deal either implicitly or in some places explicitly, suggests that we can continue to live this way as long as we have enough solar panels and wind turbines. And uh, again, I want to see more solar panels and wind turbines, but they can't replace the incredibly dense energy from fossil fuels. We can't keep this whole thing going on renewable energy. Uh, We have to remember that renewable energy itself takes fossil fuels to produce. It's very hard to mine the lithium you need from batteries with a, an electric uh, tractor and, and and dump truck and all of those things. So we just have to be realistic. Um, I, I want the softest landing possible when we move out of this high energy, high technology world. That's just basic humanity. No one wants to see exacerbated human suffering. The human suffering that exists on this planet already is enough to break everyone's heart. We don't need more of it, but we have to be realistic as we we deal with this transition. The only other alternative, of course, is full-scale collapse, where forces beyond human, the forces of nature, dictate the consequences and the conditions under which we live, and I don't think anybody wants that. We've already experienced, you know, massive fires and floods yeah. and tsunamis and yeah. yes the pain that comes yeah. from it is palpable yeah where i sit right now um there are wildfires all around us in new mexico we all live in this state with the reality that at any given moment we might lose our homes uh that is tragic when you think about the the memories as well as the material possessions that can be destroyed in a minute but that's nothing compared to the larger suffering that is inevitable if we can't control this very basic animal nature of ours. Uh, if we can't do what, as Wes always says, do what no other species has ever had to do, which is by by will, by self-conscious choice, to reduce our own energy seeking. Other animals don't have to think about that. We do. And Wes always says we should go easy on ourselves. We face a task that no other species in the history of this planet have ever faced. Uh, So we both want to hold ourselves accountable, hold each other accountable. But we also want to, you know, in a sense, go easy on ourselves. We're we're now faced with a struggle that, that is really unprecedented, not only in human history, but in the history of the planet. Thank you so much for being with us today. Your book, An Inconvenient Apocalypse, Environmental Collapse, Climate Crisis, and the Fate of Humanity, is co-authored yeah, with Wes Jackson. Uh, how can people access your book? 
Well, the book is going to be published in September. It's available for pre-order now this summer. Uh, Wes and I have been working on a, a lot of other things over the years, uh, including uh, a podcast and a book of the transcripts of those podcasts is now available for free. The easiest place to find all this is just to put my name, Robert Jensen, into a search engine, and you'll find my webpage, and there's information on all of this material there. Thank you again for being with us. Yeah. Thanks so much, Sylvia. It's always difficult talking with you because we get to such hard issues, but it's always uh, a real pleasure. I'm grateful. Mm, thank you. Thank you for listening to Latin Waves. Latin Waves is an independently produced syndicated radio program made available for free to campus and community radios and also to the world at latinwavesmedia.com. Please visit the website to hear previous shows, hear about upcoming events, and consider becoming a member for as little as $1 per month.